Well, hey, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Uh, we've got Dave Rowland coming up in about 10 minutes. Uh, it is 11.06. Uh, if you just turned the radio on Ectolife, it is the world's first artificial womb facility. Uh, and they're also suggesting that they can uh, fix birth defects and, and uh, other genetic problems uh, for people trying to have children. Uh, and we're going to get to that conversation in a second. But I, th this story is just so irritating. I've got to read this to you. Uh, you know, in California, they're suggesting that uh, they should give a quarter of a million dollars to uh, anybody who is the descendant of a slave. Well, now there is uh, this uh, one black guy, Max Fennell, uh, who apparently is an entrepreneur and the first black professional triathlete. And he said, we're not asking, we're telling you. Business owner demands black people get $350,000 each in reparations since we worked for free during slavery at a public hearing of California's Reparations Committee. And he wants $250,000 for black businesses because somehow that's going to make the world a better place. You know what? You're three generations out at least from, from slavery. And you were not repressed. You were not enslaved. You had every opportunity to make the best of the world. Don't come knocking on my door for my money uh, trying to pretend that somehow that's going to make you whole. You are whole. You just want more. You're just plain greedy. God, that just frosts my buns. All right. On the, I, I don't have time to go into great detail on that because we're already talking about ectolife. So... Let me go to the phones and chat with Sharon. Sharon, good morning. How are you? Fine. Gary, I think I have to kind of agree with Brian on that deal about you shouldn't mess what what God does. I've got some videos on this same subject. And even the people that discovered this gene hacking and splicing of the genes and stuff are admitting they don't for sure know what would happen down the road. Like, they describe it like you take a film and you cut out the scenes you don't like and splice something else in, that's what they're doing with people's genes. And you might take a, a gene out that might be negative, but then you put another one in that is synthetic, not really, you know, comes from nature, and it can cause maybe all kinds of problems down the road. I think they need to, before they start doing it on humans, they've been doing it with our food, plants, animals, insects, but I think they should wait and not do it on humans till they know more about it. Oh, I, I, think I just think that's such an exaggerated threat. Uh, they, they're getting better and better at this all the time, uh, and they're not inventing a gene. It is really a gene that they put in. And look at the look at the vaccine though. They what the, how they genetically modified it. Now it's killing people. There's proof of it now that that's killing. I, people. I don't think it's the same as using CRISPR to fix a bad gene. Uh, that would save the life of a child. I really don't. If and, and if they could eliminate that risk, try to eliminate birth defects, I'm 100% on board. All right, we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one, Sharon. Thank you. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Steve, welcome. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. How are you? I'm fine. Um, I have Jewish ancestors on my dad's side. Would that make me... Uh, eligible for reparations. 
Uh, only in Germany. Only in Germany. Or Poland. Okay. All right. Well, I think my dad's father came from southern Germany. Or his family. <laughs> So, <laughs> well, I'm part Native American. I'm not well, getting 350 grand. Didn't, didn't the Egyptians have the Jews enslaved at one time? Yeah, but that's not Americans. See, this this is uh, you know Americans enslaved blacks in the 1800s. It uh, ostensibly ended by 1865. So, you know, how many generations is that? Uh, if you go back to 1865, several. Yeah. How is this? How are they entitled to money from me when I? What about I, the people that came over as indentured servants? Good lord! I mean, These, there was a lot. I think that was a, a an easy way to get over to this country in the late seventeen hundreds and early eighteen hundreds, coming over as an indentured servant. Yeah, I, the suggestion is they're so stupid they can't get over it. Uh, eight generations later. I understand. Okay. All right. That's Thanks, that's Steve. Crazy. Thank you. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. That's what it implies. It implies that they're they're ignorant. They're stupid. They can't they can't succeed without this money from somebody else that they think they're entitled to, even though the wrongs that were suffered ended in eighteen sixty five. I'm not saying that there isn't bias or that there isn't racism that lasted for a long time, but it was disappearing by the early 1960s, the late 1950s. It was getting better and better. Now we've got this entitlement. Oh, it's not 250, and we're not asking. We're telling you we want 350 grand. Jeez, the hubris of some people. Good Lord. Reparations. How stupid is it? Who came up with this idea? Who came up with a stupid idea that you would give somebody money for something that happened to their ancestors 150 years ago? How pathetically stupid are these people? And there's a story, too, Gary, that uh, I think I shared with you that uh, they're doing this in St. Louis, too. The mayor up yes. there is considering reparations. So yes. it's starting to catch fire everywhere. Yeah. It's like, yep. well, if they're doing it there, then uh, why don't we do it here? Yeah, if they can get away with it, why can't we? It's insanity. And I keep seeing this stuff happen. You know, in the last 40 years or so, I've watched things that everybody said that'll never happen, happen. <laughs> And it's, it's crazy. I mean, look, the whole transgender thing. Nobody thought that was... If you saw some guy wearing a girl's dress, you thought, what a freakazoid. And you were right. It and when a, we suggested that, hey, if you allowed this, then those people will want to use the bathroom of their... Uh, the opposite oh, that'll sex. never happen. Yeah, and that's what they were telling us. That would never happen. Come and on. then they were saying, if that happens, there'll never be any danger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell it to that little girl in Virginia, uh, two girls in Virginia. And there are more stories than that. Those are just the, the ones that uh, are kind of top of uh, top of mind. Things that they said would just never happen are happening. And, it, it, and I can remember even with uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Act and Hubert Humphrey saying, uh, oh, they'll never be, uh, they'll never uh, have a numbers game here where they keep the quotas. And, yep. It happened. Uh, it, it just, it, the list goes on and on and on. 
$350,000. Get off your ass and go to work. Instead of telling me that you're entitled to somebody else's money. God. I think I'm a little upset. See, yesterday I was in a Christmassy mood. It was much more fun. I'm trying to get you back in the spirit right now. A little Dean Martin. Little Dean Martin, Martin yeah. Dave Roland is next. It is uh, 19 minutes after 11 o'clock. Dave Roland is with us. MoFreedom.org loves to sue the government to protect your freedom. Court allows New York to enforce limits on guns on private property. What? I, I thought they reversed. I thought they said... I thought they were yeah, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago because, uh, well, let, let's talk first about what the law actually does. Uh, New York has been trying to pass any kind of gun control laws that they can think of, despite the fact that they just got smacked down by the U.S. Supreme Court last year. Uh, so they came up with this idea. Let's ban anyone from carrying a firearm on private property unless you have gotten the express permission of the private property owner. So the private property owner could convey that permission by putting up a sign that says firearms permitted in this establishment. Um, but otherwise you'd have to have like a, an express approval from a property owner before you brought a firearm onto their property or else you were committing a felony. So, um, a federal judge looked at this and said, there's no way this is constitutional. Uh, applying the recent Bruin decision, he says, there is no federal, or rather, there's no historical analog uh, from the time of the ratification of the Bill of Rights or the ratification of the 14th Amendment that suggests that this is permissible um, under the Second Amendment. Therefore, the government loses. They can't enforce this law. That's what the, the federal district judge says. So it goes up to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And interestingly, the, the Second Circuit did not explain itself at all. Um, they issued a very short two-paragraph ruling that just says, we are staying the lower court's decision. In other words, the lower court's decision is ineffective which means that, at least for the time being, New York can continue to apply this law uh, that, that I think is clearly unconstitutional. So um, this doesn't necessarily mean that the Second Circuit is ultimately going to uphold the validity of this law, but it's a pretty strong signal. Um, in order to stay a decision by a lower court, one of the factors that they consider is the likelihood that uh, the decision was incorrect. And so basically by saying we're going to let New York go ahead and enforce this law despite the lower court's order, they're sending a pretty strong signal, I think, that they think they're ultimately going to uphold uh, this law. So um, so they're really making me development. So they're, they're, what the court has decided is that the state can make me put up a sign saying uh, uh, guns are welcome. Well, not only that, it's it's that before any person. So let's let's illustrate it. The plaintiff in this case um, does a lot of driving, and before he could stop and go into a convenience store or a gas station, um, if he didn't immediately see a sign 
that said that firearms were allowed, he would have to stop before getting onto the property and secure his firearm, make sure it was unloaded and stored uh, in a locked compartment in his car. And then at that point, he could drive onto the property of the gas station or convenience store, um, at which point maybe he would find out, oh, yes, actually, they do allow firearms. But if it, if he didn't see a sign initially, then he wouldn't know, and he'd have to uh, modify his behavior as though they prohibited firearms because he's running the risk of a felony if he is mistaken, right? Um, so that's that's kind of the situation that he found himself in, and that's why he filed the lawsuit. Now, it may be that the Second Circuit ultimately comes back and says, well, this guy doesn't actually have standing because no one has enforced the law against him yet. He's assuming that if he violates the law, they would enforce the law against him. But if nobody's actually enforced the law, then uh, maybe he doesn't have standing to file this case. That's essentially the, the rationale that was being argued in our Good Samaritan case, uh, where we pointed out, hey, look, they've received this citation, and judge uh, the, the judge said, well, yeah, but they dropped the prosecution, and there's no indication that they're going to enforce this going forward, so I'm not sure you have standing. Same kind of rationale could be applied in this case. It's the wrong rationale. It's incorrect, but that might be how the Second Circuit tries to get out of um, ruling that this law is unconstitutional, because I think it pretty clearly is unconstitutional applying um, the standards set forward in Bruin last year. But it's, you know, it's another one of these cases that we've got to keep a close eye on, because um, you and I have talked re repeatedly about a lot of these jurisdictions where they instinctively want to uphold gun control laws, they're going to be bending over backwards to figure out ways they can do so. Um, the Second Circuit falls into that category of a court that I think is going to be trying to bend over backwards to find ways to uphold these gun control laws. Now, ultimately, hopefully, cases like this end up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, they, they clarify no lower courts, you don't get to weasel out of this. Um, but, but again, it's, it's likely to be a protracted legal battle that's going to be fought on many different fronts as you have the lower courts trying to figure out what wiggle room they might be able to figure out to avoid upholding the Second Amendment. Man, oh man, oh man. Uh, I, I, it, it just, it's crazy making. Uh, it is absolutely, it is crazy making. I want to move on to the Missouri Attorney General, uh, the COVID school mask suit. Yeah, this is one of the cases that uh, we didn't get to talk about last week. It's it's really interesting because under uh, former Attorney General Schmidt, he uh, he brought a lot of these lawsuits against school districts that were requiring masking, and then he ended up dropping all of these lawsuits. And there were dozens of these lawsuits. And so the attorney general's office tried to voluntarily dismiss this. And when they do that, ordinarily, it makes it as though the case has never been filed in the first place. But Lee Summit School District over in the Kansas City area took the unusual act of filing a counterclaim against the attorney general's office. In other words, when they got sued, they said, oh, you know what? We're going to sue you right back. And they were arguing we need to know for sure 
are we allowed to impose these mask mandates or are we not? So now there's the really strange circumstance of the attorney general is trying to prevent the courts from ruling on this question. And it's weird because the attorney general started this fight. The attorney general wanted a court ruling on these questions initially. And now the attorney general's office has decided, oh, no, wait, we don't want a ruling at all. Uh, even though the school district is is trying to push for it, I think there's a pretty good chance the courts say, um, "Yeah, the the school district is demanding an answer to this question. It's the kind of of uh, issue that may pop up again. It's a very important issue. The courts need to resolve this, so we will know the next time something like this pops up." Uh, what the schools have the authority to do and what they do not have the authority to do. Um, but it's a really unusual situation in that the attorney general's office is now actively trying to avoid a ruling on this question about are they the afraid of setting school a, mask mandates. Are they afraid of setting a precedent that they'll lose? Uh, that's the only way I can read this. I mean, the only way I can read this is, is that the attorney general's office is scared that they're going to lose the case. Now, I don't think that they will lose the case. I actually think that they had a pretty solid uh, argument for for why they should be um, for why the mask mandates were unconstitutional at the outset. But um, but it seems like they're trying to avoid a ruling. And the only reason I can think for that is that uh, they're they're worried they're going to lose. Why do you think that he had such a solid case? Well, um, in large part, it had to do with. Uh, the separation of powers. Um, and there was a, a really good decision out of the Cole County Circuit Court on this topic uh, that ultimately struck down some of these local mask mandates and, and uh, COVID restrictions on the basis that they had not been adopted by a legislative body. They were adopted by an executive body or in some cases just a single executive official uh, acting by fiat. And that's basically what a lot of these school districts were doing. The school districts were imposing their mandates and their decisions without having the approval of any sort of a legislative body. And I think that that's a violation of the separation of powers under the Missouri Constitution. So that's why I think that there's actually a really solid uh, constitutional case that most of these school mandates were unconstitutional. If the policy was expressly approved by a legislative body, for example, like a school board or a local government, um, that's a different situation. But but if the mask mandate was being imposed by uh, just an executive authority, especially if it was just one individual like a superintendent uh, or a principal, then I think that that's pretty clearly a violation of the separation of powers. All right. Well, we'll have to see what uh, what that uh, turns up, and uh, we'll we'll count on you to keep a surprise. In the meantime, take two elderly women and uh, some feral cats and the police, and you mix it all up, and what you get is really not pretty. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Also, a Texas mother who was jailed for leaving her 14-year-old at home alone is seeking some recourse from the police. Details coming up. Gary Nolan, Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show. 1135, glad to have you with us. 
Uh, I'm pleased to tell you Dave Rowland is with us, MoFreedom.org. He loves to sue the government to protect your freedom, and he does it all the time. Uh, and we always uh, chat about other cases from around the country. Uh, take two elderly women uh, who are feeding feral cats. Uh, add in, uh, w- well, you know, when you got two women that age, uh, Dave, you, you, you can never be too careful. You, you want to bring, a, you know. They're they, a danger to society, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, an 85-year-old and a 61-year-old uh, that are, are trying to provide a public service. Gary, I, you're, you're not a cat person, are you? Oh, no. No, not a cat person. Well, no. yeah, I'm not much of a cat person either. Uh, but let me tell you a little story. When Jennifer and I lived in St. Louis, uh, there were a lot of feral cats around our neighborhood. And so we started uh, participating in what's called a catch-neuter release program, where you catch the cats, you take them to a local vet or, or a, a, a pet shelter and have them neutered so they can no longer reproduce, and then you release them back into the neighborhood. And in doing this reduces the number of future feral cats that are going to be out there, right? It is a pro-social activity. Well, that's what these two ladies in Alabama were trying to do. Uh, there was starting to be a feral cat program, uh, feral cat problem in their town. And so they would go down to this city park and they would set out traps and they'd bait it with fancy feast. And when the cats got trapped, they would take them, have them neutered, and then release them back. The town decided they didn't like this. Why? Uh, I think it's just because it was people trying to solve a problem without the government's interference. It reminded me a lot of this situation from five years ago in Toronto, where there was a public park and the city commissioned a study. They were going to build some stairs for this public park. They commissioned a study, and it was going to cost $65,000 to build just a short flight of stairs for this park. And this local citizen looks at it, and he says, you know what? I could do this myself for much cheaper. So he goes, and he spends $550 and gets the materials and builds a beautiful little set of stairs for the park. $550 versus $65,000. And the city went ballistic that this private citizen had tried to solve a problem on his own at his own expense without relying on the government to do it. That's what's happening with this town in Alabama. These citizens saw a problem. They have a proven solution uh, and they started to try and implement that solution and the government went ballistic. So uh, they had a hearing this last week. And the, the ladies took the unusual step of they not only contested uh, the, the charges against them, which was criminal trespassing in a public park, uh, they brought in an expert from uh, one of these uh, animal welfare organizations, and the expert testified, look, this is the best possible way, the most humane way of dealing with a feral cat problem is, is catch, neuter, and release. It's far superior than other methods of, of trying to address this problem. And the city was unmoved. They said, well, we think that the fact that there are these now empty cans of Fancy Feast in dumpsters is continuing to attract more cats, and also maybe it attracts buzzards, and also we believe that uh, feral cats are responsible for, for chewing through solid steel containers 
and and causing this vermin problem. That's what the city actually testified. And someone else said, look, cats don't chew through steel. Like if if there has actually been this issue, it's probably rodents, not cats. Um, in other words, you have identified the very incorrect um, uh, problem here, and it's it's surely not the ladies who are responsible for it. Uh, and yet, the the court convicted them, and so uh, the women got fined fifty dollars for each offense, and they had several different offenses. They were given two years of unsupervised probation, but also they got a suspended sentence of ten days in jail. Now, the suspended sentence means that they don't have to go to jail right now, but if they get in any sort of trouble during this probation period, then the, uh, the jail sentence is triggered and they'll have to go to jail. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous, and I hope they appeal this. Uh, I don't know that they will, but but I sure hope that they do, because this is one of the most ridiculous situations I've seen. And, Gary, I've seen a lot of ridiculous situations. Yeah, as as have I, uh, and I remember when that guy By in the Canada, way, the city sent three patrol cars. Yeah, to to corral these women. Well, like three I said, patrol cars. Ninety year olds can be really, really de- uh, dangerous uh, when you when cornered. Uh, well, they certainly do seem feisty. Yeah, like like feral cats, I guess. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, all right, uh, Texas mother, and I remember remember talking about this case as well. Uh, who was jailed because she left her 14-year-old at home alone is going to sue the cops. Yeah, so there's been a development in this. We talked about this when she first filed her lawsuit, um, and the big topic that we talked about was qualified immunity uh, because to to remind people of what happened, um, this parent, it's actually a two-parent household. Uh, The husband was in the military and was stationed in Kuwait and the wife was going to make a trip to Kuwait to see about potentially getting a job there so she could, uh, so the family could all be together. Uh, but in order to check this out, she needed to make this short trip. It was just a few days and she had a 14 year old and a 12 year old. Um, and she decided rather than uh, sending them off somewhere else. She would let them stay at the house. She got their next-door neighbors that they're very good friends with to check up on them constantly, make sure everything was okay. But she thought, you know what? 14-year-olds historically have, have been thought that they can take care of themselves and uh, they can look after their older siblings. And so uh, she left on this trip. Everything was fine until one of the people that the mother had lined up to help her daughter get to school, got sick and wasn't able to do it. And so a school administrator asked a school district police officer to go and help out and give this girl a ride. The police officer says, oh, well, I think there's a problem here. Now, importantly, when the police officer filed a report with Child Protective Services, Child Protective Services said there's nothing to see here. This is not a problem. And yet the police officer still pursued this. He ended up removing the girl from the home, taking her in for questioning. And then when the mother arrived home, he arrested the mother for uh, child abandonment or uh, putting the child uh, in harm or in harm's way. And 
So the big question is, is this officer entitled to qualified immunity? Is the mother allowed to sue for what's been done to her and her child? The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said this week, no qualified immunity. The officer absolutely should have known that he had no legal basis for removing this child from the home and absolutely no legal basis for putting the mother in jail for having left the children at home under these circumstances. So that lawsuit is going to move forward and it looks very good uh, for, for the mother and her ability to hold this crazy officer accountable for his abuse of his authority. It it um, it makes me child protective services, generally speaking, make me crazy. Uh, I'm I'm not sure where to draw the line when it comes to protecting children. I know that we need to protect them, but I I so often see these uh, cases go off the rails. Uh, in this case, apparently, it, it didn't. The police were the ones that were uh, out of line. Yeah, that's that's an interesting data point here and and unfortunately courts are much more likely to give child protective services leeway when it comes to intruding into parental rights um the, the courts just kind of reflexively uh defer to some of the decisions made by by child protective services but here i think that it it really made a big difference that child protective services specifically said this is not a problem, and the officer acted anyway. Um, kind of the, the what the court said, summing it all up, and I think that this is you know helpful to to point out. They said, look, the law is clear. Where an officer seeks to remove a child from their home, the officer first has to get a court order, parental consent, or there has to be some exigent circumstance that shows that there is an imminent danger to the child. So those are the three circumstances in which police officers are allowed to remove a child from the home. Court order, parental consent, or exigent circumstances showing imminent danger to the child. So uh, that's actually a fantastic decision to get from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Hopefully, we'll be able to put it into use in some of the other circuits across the country. Well, we have more, including the Super Bowl. Uh, this story is kind of unique. I wouldn't expect that to come up on this program, but it, it makes sense. We'll talk about that uh, in a lawsuit uh, in California. That'll wrap up the, the program with Dave Rowland on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. It is Think Tank Thursday on the Gary Nolan Show, and Dave Rowland is with us, MoFreedom.org. Let me just add slash donate. More MoFreedom.org slash donate. Uh, because when he represents somebody in this guise, he does it at no cost to them. And maybe it'll be you one day uh, who's been wronged, uh, and he will rally to your defense. So support it. Uh, at least it makes sense to me to do just that. All right. Um, this year's Super Bowl host uh, has imposed a policy forbidding local property or uh, owners in a designated area from posting temporary signs without first getting permission from the city. Why, how, how do they figure they have that authority? Uh, <laughs> you know... A lot of these local governments decide it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Um, and, and so I don't think they actually believe they have the authority to do this because both the First Amendment and the Arizona Constitution, like the Missouri Constitution, 
protect citizens' freedom of speech. And one of the most important elements of that protection is it forbids prior restraint. Prior restraint means the government cannot require you to get its permission before you say whatever it is you want to say. And that's exactly what this is. So effectively, um, we're talking about a two-square-mile area of downtown Phoenix. And the city government has said, if you intend to put up a temporary sign and you own property in this two-square-mile area, you first not only have to get the government's permission, but you also have to get the, the permission of the Super Bowl host committee, which is like this private-public partnership, uh, but also the NFL itself. So it's not just prior restraint from the government. It's also prior restraint. They're delegating authority to these private entities to decide what other people should be allowed to say on their property. It so, is so if I have a large, so I have a large property, and uh, I want to charge five dollars to let people park on the property, and I want to put up a sign that says that, or I want to put you up a sign. You've got to get the city's permission. You've got to get the NFL's permission, and you have to get this special committee's permission. Uh, that doesn't sound like it's going to pass muster. I don't think so. And fortunately, uh, Arizona has uh, a group that's a sister group to the F Freedom Center of Missouri. It's called the Goldwater Institute. And Goldwater um, is going to file a lawsuit to enjoin this this new law that, that Phoenix is trying to put into place. I have every expectation that they're going to succeed in this lawsuit because, again, this is this is one of the most ridiculously unconstitutional laws uh, I have heard of recently. So we'll keep track of it, but I, I would expect in the next few weeks that we'll see a court strike this down. Can, uh, and you think that'll happen in the next couple of weeks that the court will stop it? Yeah, I think so. So there are different ways that cases can proceed in the courts. If you have an issue that's kind of a close call, legally speaking, um, then you're probably going to need to um, have a, a more protracted litigation process. But if the law is so clearly unconstitutional, you can ask for a preliminary injunction, and that uh, involves the court stepping in and saying you are not allowed to enforce this law. Um, that's what was happening with that New York gun law that we talked about. Yeah. The court stepped in and said, you can't enforce this law, at least until the Second uh, Circuit stayed the, the opinion. So Goldwater, I'm sure, is going to be immediately asking for a preliminary injunction that would prevent the city from enforcing this. And I think that the court's going to grant that uh you know, toot sweet. I, I think that there will be very little delay here again because it's it's an egregious overstep. I, again, it's not just the government with the ability to exercise prior restraint, but delegating that authority to other citizens, letting other citizens control what people are allowed to say on their own property is just nuts. So. Um, I'll look forward to being able to announce in a couple of weeks that Goldwater, has, <laughs> e either that Goldwater prevailed or that the city dropped this ridiculous policy. For the first time in weeks, we are going to get to the final topic. A uh, California city that attempted to require landlords to evict tenants that were suspected of committing crimes. Well, they've. 
they've seen the light. Uh, very quickly, uh, give us the details. How? I, I don't know how much they've actually seen the light, but this town in California uh, has done what a number of cities nationwide have tried to do, where they require landlords to evict these people who have not been convicted of crimes, but who are suspected of crimes. Um, essentially, cities are looking for ways to skirt the Constitution's protections for due process. Um, you know, ordinarily, you can't force somebody out of the city unless they have been proven to have violated the law in some way. But these innovative government attorneys realized, well, look, we don't have to take direct action against the citizens themselves. If they're renting property, we can force their landlords to do it. And so we don't have to provide due process. Well, um, the U.S. Department of Justice filed a lawsuit on behalf of the tenants there. And uh, in the face of that lawsuit, the city finally decided that they were going to fold. And in doing so, they're going to pay a million-dollar judgment, a uh, million dollars in, in uh, compensation to the people that have been harmed through their enforcement of this ordinance. So, so it's, it's good news. Um, in that we're, we're seeing an unconstitutional law going away. The big question is, um, will other cities follow suit? Because, I, again, like I said, this is the kind of thing that has been raised in other cities. In fact, there were a couple of suburbs of St. Louis that had tried to impose similar restrictions uh, on, on landlords, mandatory evictions for tenants. And uh, it's just bad for everybody. It's unconstitutional in that it denies due process, but it's also um, an abridgment of the rights of contract. You know, it forces the landlord to get rid of somebody with whom they have a contractual relationship. So, unconstitutional all around. Don't surprise me none. Uh, well, I'll see, I'll see you Sunday, won't I, at CC's? You will. I'm absolutely planning to be there. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you there. All right. Uh, we got to run. We are out of time. Uh, Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org, slash donate. Uh, thank you for being with us. Always a pleasure, Gary. All right, buddy, take care. Uh, tomorrow's Froster Buns Friday, a chance for you to vent. Uh, it's an opportunity for you to call the program with any topic that's on your mind. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is. Make you feel better. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day. Carpe diem. Gwen, baby. Honey, I'm coming home.